Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Quit now, you'll never make it. That's seriously, quit now, you're never going to make it. And, and the reason why I say this is that, I mean, here, the other half of this advice is if you can ignore this advice, you're halfway there. <laughs> All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am honored and happy and excited to be interviewing a man that has been a part of my life and was an inspiration to me in this business, and that's David Zucker. I'm going to give him the proper introduction, but before I do, I'll just remind you guys, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so very much. I am so grateful for you guys listening and emailing me, and the feedback has been unbelievable, and millions of people out there, I don't know what happened or how it happened or why it happened, but it happened, and I'm glad that you guys are listening and enjoying it, and it's having a positive effect on you all that means a tremendous amount also if you're ever on amazon you ever want to buy something for my sake if you want to support the podcast and it doesn't cost you any money is go to the amazon banner at barrycats.com slash podcast click on it buy whatever you want and amazon takes care of this show with a few shekels for the barry cats jewish sons memorial college fund so thank you for supporting the show I appreciate it, and I'm very grateful. And now I will give David Zucker the proper introduction as he falls asleep quietly with a hot coffee in his hand. Well, I'll I'll record this, everything you've said so far, and use it to get to sleep at night. I can just put this by my bedside. And I always started to nod off, but now that you're going to talk about my introduction, I'm going to listen. All right. Thank, thank goodness. Okay. This is a very interesting introduction, by the way, very different from the other ones I've, I've done before. David S. Zucker is an American film director and producer and screenwriter. He was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the son of Charlotte A. Lefstein and Burton C. Zucker, who was a real estate developer. He graduated from Shorewood High School, and he's married to Dr. Danielle 
Ardolino Zucker, with whom he has had two children, Charles and Sarah. Zucker was raised Jewish. No shit. Uh, from both parents, David and Danielle married in May 1997, and his younger brother Jerry, his filmmaking partner from the Zucker brothers, have a sister, Susan. Zucker's movies include the legendary and iconic Kentucky Fried movie in 1977, the Naked Gun series, which included the Naked Gun 2.5, The Smell of Fear. He also did Basketball in 1998, which we're going to talk about, which was a real game, and Scary Movie 3 and its sequel, Scary Movie 4, as well as An American Carol. He co-directed several films, including the unbelievably historic airplane in 1980 and top secret in 1984 along with his brother jerry and jim abrams the trio make up the zazz team of directors i should say z-a-z but i'll say zazz he has also worked with pat proft which whom he first teamed up on the naked gun show police squad and craig mazin writer of three of the five scary movies Looking back on his career, as I alluded to before, in 2009, Leslie Nielsen said the best film he ever appeared in was The Naked Gun, and that Zucker was his favorite director to work with. Nielsen said of him, quote, He came to me one time and said, Leslie, I'll never make you do anything that is not funny. And he kept his word, unquote. Zaz and Proft helped develop the parody genre of films in which jokes are spit out with rapid fire using puns, physical humor, wit, and double entendres. Some of the veteran actors of Zaz's visions of movies included Lloyd Bridges, Charlie Sheen, Julie Haggerty, and Anna Ferris, as well as, of course, Leslie Nielsen. In his movie, he honors his mother often, Charlotte. As she's been cast in small bit roles like one of Lucille Ball impersonator in Rat Race and Vincent Ludwig's secretary Dominique in the Naked Gun series. Zucker has stated that his dream project is a Davy Crockett biopic and he mentioned his enthusiasm for the project during an interview in 2006 for the feature length documentary That Guy, The Legacy of Dub Taylor. The project had its world premiere at Taylor's childhood hometown of Augusta, Georgia in 2007. Since that time, it's been a passion of David Zucker's to figure out a way to do something memorable and inspirational around the life story of Davy Crockett. Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, the not mad at me because I'm late, David Zucker. Thanks. Thanks, Barry. (laughs) You made it sound good. I want to do that. I want to make you sound good because you I know I need that. You know you aren't good though. What you're you you're you're extraordinary. Oh yes. Well, uh, my bottom line is just that people worship me, and that's that's all I require. I will promise I will get down on my knees okay. and hands, not hands and knees, knees and hands, because I want to make sure the hands are down last. I know we don't want to get into that. No, we don't. Yeah. That's another biopic. Yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Last time I saw you, I think I was moderating a panel, which I felt like I deserved to be wearing clown feet because I'm moderating a panel with you. You know, you should be moderating the panel and I should be getting you coffee, which I just did. Then you did a good job of it. But I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm more comfortable just being on panels and just getting asked questions and not having to, you know, be 
be <laughs> just spilled my coffee. <laughs> Do you want me to get you a towel yeah, or a wet nap? A towel. Maybe Nathan can get us a towel. I hope yeah. we have a towel. Yeah, uh, we have some Anyways, napkins I, in the drawer. I, right I kind of get excited. And I start gesturing. No, the, so they this listen. Is, this is it's, yeah. Anytime somebody gets excited around yeah. me is like uh, this is like incredible. You know, my I I'm very proud of my daughter because she's kind of a natural clown. <laughs> and she'll do stuff like that. Anyways, I used to go not to, um, this isn't meant to bring you down. So please, as most people on the podcast know, I suffered a tragedy when I was younger. My wife passed away when I, uh, she was 23 and I was 26. And this guy, a comedian from Rhode Island, who was an auto salesman, used to come up every Monday and he used to knock on the door and make me come out with him. You'll know where this is going in a second. And he would say, dinner and a movie. We're going to dinner and a movie. I'd say, listen, I don't, you know, his name was Ed Regine. I said, Ed, I'm just not feeling it. I just can't do it. He said, dinner and a movie. Get out. Come out now. And he would do anything to make me feel good. And every time at the movie theater, I, he'd say, could I have a large popcorn, please? i say, Ed, please don't do that. <laughs> and he'd walk down in the middle of the place with all the people, and he'd pretend to trip and popcorn just everywhere. And he'd have like five people helping him up, and there'd be popcorn. All, Let me get you another popcorn. And every movie, he'd do that clown thing where he'd fall with the popcorn all over the place. Yeah, falling always seems to be funny. <laughs> yeah. And I always tell my cameraman, when I, when I start with a new cameraman, that when you ha when when the fall happens, not to follow the person down. You have the 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 faller always has to fall out of frame. People don't realize this. If you follow the person down to the the floor, it's not funny. Now, how did you learn that? You know, I, I to be honest with you, I, I don't know. But it's just it just happened. I mean, we just. We, we did have a natural instinct for, for comedy, but I think we, we gradually learned how to do it just by, by trial and error. Because we, you know, we ran that, a, a, a little theater in L.A. on Pico Boulevard called Kentucky Fried Theater. And, uh, and, and we did video and live in the same show and some, some film even. So, so we just, you know, we, we learned by, and we were directing, so we just, we just learned. And so, well, what happened, like sometimes, if I, you don't mind me sort of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you a little bit here, yeah. sometimes when you're not directing something, well, you are directing, but there's a live thing, and somebody falls, like Chevy Chase did, not out of frame, it's still funny, you know? Well, that's a different thing, because they were doing Saturday Night Live, for instance, and that's a that's a stage show. It's It's more, it's television, and so... The rules are different. Our rules, you know, what we do is purely for for movies. I want to talk about your rules, but I and I, I want to talk about so many things, and there's so many amazing stories you have. And again, I'm so grateful that you're here and spilling coffee all over yourself on a regular basis. Yeah, it's very important. I, I'm, I've never had somebody grab the coffee stronger than they grab the microphone. This is good. Yeah. That coffee is brewed with the temperature of the sun. Yeah, but by the time it got up here, it wasn't that hot. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. Yeah, we, we, we packed in the ice when we brought it up here. So I want to go way back, if you don't mind. Yeah. We're way, 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 way back to Wisconsin, where you grew up. Right. And, 
and uh, and what your family dynamic was like and what was happening in your neighborhood and what was the first inspiration for you and your brother to want to be in the entertainment business? Well, I think, you know, our life was pretty much leave it to Beaver. Jerry and I were Beaver and Wally and, you know, we just lived in a nice suburb and it was Milwaukee. And But people were funny in my high school. And, I mean, there were... There were five or six guys in my class who were funnier than I was, but they just were able to find jobs when they graduated. <laughs> and, so, and and Jerry, one of uh, you know, Jerry, you know, was a class clown of, of his classes too. And one of his teachers even said, "Zucker, someday I'm going to pay to see you, but for for right now, shut up." <laughs> and, and and so so it was it was like that in our high school it wasn't a dangerous high school we weren't physically in danger but it was kill or be killed as far as you know verbally you know just verbal assaults you know everybody was was ripping on each other and so we kind of had to to get into that but I wasn't I wasn't the funniest one and and I don't think Jerry was either so but we just and then Jim Abrams our partner was four years ahead of us in the same high school. And in fact, our fathers were business partners, uh, Abrahams and Zucker Real Estate. Wow. And our mothers were friends, our sisters were college roommates, so the families were really, really close. And so after college, well, well in college, Jerry and I made some student films, and you know they, they got a lot of attention because the professor of my, my class, which was Introduction to Radio, Television, Film, or, or communications as it is now, um, saw that he was shown my 10-minute short in that I did for my study section, and he showed it for the entire 600-seat lecture. And Jerry and I were hooked because we made this big audience laugh while everybody else was doing these esoteric, you know, kind of, you know, combinations of light and shooting camera angles that were from under tables and it was just and jerry and i just did funny so talk about how you came up with the idea for that short what the short was if you acted in it or not and and how you what films you studied on television or in the movies to know how to where to put the camera and how to how to make your first short film because back then you know right now you can make films with your iphone uh but back then you have to have a film camera right it was a super super eight camera which uh, like the zabruder film yeah which they sent us uh, who's they gave us who's they uh the the uh the class you know the 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 university one of those that you hold like a handle and it's uh yeah it was yeah one of those kodak you know super eight or canon Super 8 cameras, and that's what we used. And I actually used my dad's camera because it was better than the school cameras that they gave us. And you know, we we I think we learned kind of the this was not USC or UCLA; it was University of Wisconsin. And uh, so, but we I think we learned rudimentary, you know, camera angles, things like that. But I I I did a a, a movie. Um, of uh, it, it was a guy who who took LSD, and this was you know right in the middle of all that drug era. And, so you were you you and, and Vietnam War protests. So you had taken LSD, so you knew what it was like. Actually, no, no. I just I I pretty much was on the sidelines. You know, we would we would we would smoke 
joints, you know, but it was only on weekends. We never never got into to drugs. Even out here, we were not not into any any drugs. But we did, you know, we just it was like drinking wine on the weekends. And so we did this uh we did this uh, I had this idea that Jerry would take LSD and and then look at some water and then suddenly have this overwhelming urge to pee and so he runs all over the campus uh seeing nothing but water fountains <laughs> and ends up climbing up the statue of lincoln which is right in front of the main bascom hall on on bascom hill there uh and and he pees off the statue and that was it but it was funny and and actually and strangely enough jerry was not my first choice for the for the actor i asked i asked a couple of guys from the dish crew that I was. I worked. Uh, was he mad? Job. Was he mad at you for not asking? No, he. We didn't know anything, and Jerry didn't know anything. So Jerry was just glad that you know he was happy to do it, and so that was. It really turned out to be our first real collaboration. So you direct your brother. I direct. Jim brother. Abrams is not involved in that. He was not involved. So, but you direct your brother, and he sees in front of six hundred people. That he's killing yeah, as an actor. He's killing, yeah. Does he think, hey, I better forget this directing thing or no, this no, producing no, Jerry, thing? I want to act. Jerry had not a thought of like, I'm a great actor. No, he, no, he, he thought like me. We, we had done this thing that made people laugh, and I, I don't think Jerry ever, you know, attributed anything to his acting. However, in Kentucky Fried Theater. Jerry was great. I mean, he was just, he was a natural performer, as was Dick Chudnow, our other performer. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Okay, but so you're in Wisconsin, you graduate. When do you decide you're going to move to L.A., and how does that? How do you make oh, that move? Well, that, that took a while. After, after graduation, I applied for jobs in the movie industry, which such that it was in, in Milwaukee at the time, which was really some advertising agencies and TV stations. I went to Chicago and applied at some places, even as far as Indianapolis. But I, I was, I, I didn't, I didn't find any, any takers. So my dad offered me a job to work uh, for him. He was building an office building. He was in commercial real estate. And so I became his construction expediter for a year while Jerry was still uh, doing his, in his, junior year at at the uw and uh so uh around that time uh my dad offered me 
some videotape equipment. At that point, they were huge video decks, half-inch reel-to-reel decks, uh, and and with a big camera that you put over your shoulder. Now, for those of you who don't know and will never remember this, the formats back 25 or 30 years ago for news in television, believe it or not, they used one-inch tape. Yeah, this was, and this was the first home video, which was half-inch tape. Yeah, and so I believe three-quarter inch was the next format that was in, and then half-inch was actually a format before VHS. Before VHS, which was a cassette. This was reel-to-reel on a, a huge deck that was not portable. And that's that. I think that first video came out probably in 67, and a guy named Ken Shapiro started a... He he did a an hour show called Channel One with Chevy Chase and someone named Lane Sarazen, and this was like the first counterculture video, and they did it in the village in uh, in in New York, Greenwich Village. Yeah, Greenwich Village, and they and they and they charge money for people to go in and see this videotape stuff, and so. It was 1971 when I went down to visit a girlfriend in Chicago and there was an offshoot of Channel One called Void Where Prohibited by Law. And they had a similar thing in Newtown in Chicago where you go up some steps, it was in a loft, uh, a huge waterbed in the middle of a room with a Coke machine at one end and the TV monitor at the other and they charge money. to. And I just, this was an epiphany for me. And I said, well, we can do this. And it was, you know, like an hour of mostly scatological humor. And I, I wonder if I would think it was funny today, but I, I laughed all the way through. And I, I think the girl I was with probably did not laugh very much. But I drove straight to Madison where Jerry was a junior. Or, or maybe it was his senior year. Yeah, his senior year. And I said, oh, we got to do this. We just, you know, this is what, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, we'll start a theater and we'll, we can, we can do uh, a videotape with this, with this equipment that my dad could, could get us for nothing. And which I had turned down at first saying, what can I do with video? I'm a, I want to be a film director. So uh, we did that. We started the theater with, we got a Jim Abrams and another fellow named Dick Chudnow. And uh, the four of us, I think we invested, I don't know, for $800, we, we started this theater in so, the back of a bookstore. So you started the theater in the back of a bookstore. In, Where was in it? Madison, in Madison. In Madison. On the campus, just blocks from the campus. And that was an immediate hit, and it was, it was great. And we did that for that whole, that whole school year. So explain how it worked. Did you operate seven nights a week, one night a week? How did it oh, operate? No, we, this was just Friday and Saturday. So Friday and Saturday. What, just give me an example of uh, what would happen. Friday and Saturday, I imagine it would be the same show Friday and the same show Saturday. Yeah. But explain to me what the show would be from start to finish and, and briefly. Well, they were blackout sketches. And it was uh, about, you know, almost an hour and a half. We had an intermission. Uh, there was a stage, there were 70 seats. And on the stage, there was a video monitor. And we did certain segments where, like, we'd show 10 minutes of 
uh, commercial spoofs. And then on stage, we would do sketches, you know, like you'd see on... Groundlings. Yeah. Or did you bring your student film out and play that? No, we never did for that. No, we just... What, what we had in, in film was, like, we did a spoof of The Godfather, um, you know, the scene where the guy wakes up with the horse's head in the bed, mm-hmm. recruited my uncle, and he wakes up, and it's a picture of... Uh, David and Julie Eisenhower. To give you an idea of how long ago this was, you'd have to explain who David and Julie Eisenhower were. And but they were like the kind of the stodgy, not very cool couple. And so, and the guy, you know, is screaming that he's that somebody put this picture. In I mean, that was one of the things we did on on film. I want to know how your improvisational mind works. I want you to pretend. That you're recreating that short sketch on film right now. You're going in this afternoon to do it. What would be in the bed in place of the horse's head today? Oh, Hillary Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know off the top of my head? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Anyway, so keep going. This is amazing. So, um, and, 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 and one of the sketches we did was, um, uh, a couple uh, watching the TV monitor and starting to make out, and they're watching the news. And they get more and more into their lovemaking and hot and heavy, and the newscaster starts getting distracted from his <laughs> news and looking at this. So we, this is a thing, sketch we later did, we put in Kentucky, Kentucky Fried Friday. Movie. But we did this live on stage, and it was great because they were actually watching a TV monitor and so the guys, the, you know, the, the newscasters, the, you know, the tech guys come in and start walking. It ends up in a huge orgasm. And, uh, you know, when I think back of this, I think of my mom and dad coming to see the show. <laughs> it's like, it's, you know, I can't believe we did this. But uh, what did they, they say after it. the show? They loved it. You know, they loved the show. And, you know, yeah. And also, you know, Aunt B and Uncle Maury came to see the show. My my grandmother's brother and sister. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And we and just it wasn't talked about how sexually perverse the show was, but it was it was getting a lot of laughs, and it was very successful. And all that we could only charge a dollar a ticket admission. Why? Because it just that was like all the traffic. <laughs> would bear uh, bear in mind this was 1971 uh gas was 25 cents a gallon you know you could buy a huge house in beverly hills for you know ninety thousand dollars this was it was different it was a different world and so we decided we had to we should move out to if we're if we're this good people like us that much we should move to LA and get onto the Tonight Show, and then we'd be, you know, fame and fortune would would follow. So the shows in the back of the bookstore were selling out every yeah. week. And did you have to move to a different venue, or you just said we're going to LA? We got, we got to go to LA. We can't. We could stay in Madison forever and just die there, and then be, and we could be sixty years old and still on stage, you know, earning a dollar a week or something. So so we we loaded up a U-Haul truck and moved the show and uh, uh, and a couple of the people from the troupe 
to to L.A. So there were six of us. We got to but where'd LA. you get the money to do that? Well, it didn't take that much money. We actually we it was an investment of twelve thousand dollars, and we each chipped in three. And and uh, but back then twelve thousand then is like one hundred twenty thousand yeah, today. It was yeah, it was more <laughs> certainly more than it is today, but. But you know, we—it was a great adventure. So you found the theater here. Where'd we you found find the it? Place I—I I went out in the this during the spring break before June uh, to find a theater. And actually, we were looking in San Francisco and L.A. And I happened—I found an old warehouse on Pico Boulevard that had a uh, lo and behold, it had uh, apartments up above, so we could actually get this place plus the living space for $300 a month. Wow. And so, and that was a tremendous break. How many apartments were above? There were, uh, we, we had, uh, there were three bedrooms and the equivalent of three bedrooms. If we use the living room for one of the bedrooms. So who lived upstairs? Uh, Jim and Jerry and I lived upstairs and Dick I think Dick lived there too. Yeah, we all four of us lived. And you were equal partners in equal the theater. Partners, and we would hammer and nail and build this theater out of one of the the larger rooms in the warehouse by day, and then uh, Jim would cook, uh, and Jim would knock off at about three, go and buy a roast, and he'd cook, and we'd eat out on the deck, which was uh, on the roof. What was the goal of how big you wanted the theater to be? Well, this was a. Uh, well, it was a 130-seat theater by now, and what we wanted to do is attract the attention of The Tonight Show and get on The Tonight Show. That was the goal. Okay, so that was your goal. Yeah. Why did you decide the name of the Kentucky Fried Theater? Where did that well, name come from, and how did it come yeah, about? Yeah, that was in, back in Madison, we, you know, we needed to name the theater, and uh, we had an ad deadline that we had to, if we're going to put a, an ad in in time to get any kind of uh, publicity for the opening, we needed to get this, uh, this the name of the theater, and we had no name. And so we, we were thinking of dozens and dozens of names ending in theater, and then and we were getting exhausted, and we were at a big boy restaurant in... in, a in Bob's Madison, Big Boy. Bob's Big Boy. And uh, we looked across the street, and there was a Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant, and someone said you know, Kentucky Fried Theater. And everybody laughed like that was a stupid name. We'd never use it because it was just nutty. And and so somebody said, you know, if we had any guts at all, that's what we would name it. And so we did. And that, you know, and that's that's what it became. Did Colonel Sanders ever try to sue you? Uh, no, because uh, there there was somebody suggested that there there was something there, but... but uh, they just they they thought it was decided that if we weren't selling food, really, that our main business was not selling chicken, it was okay. But down the street from on Pico, from the Kentucky Fried Theater, um, was a Kentucky Fried Chicken place, and we talked to someone there, and they they had gotten some calls there that were confused people because we called our first show vegetables and just for no reason and somebody called the kentucky fried chicken place saying uh do you have vegetables <laughs> and they said no but we have chicken or something you know we we have coleslaw something you know so uh, that was the, the the closest anything came to 
<clears throat> being an issue, and it never became an issue. So you decide to open sometime in the mid seventies, I guess, or early seventies. Well, we opened the show in L.A. in uh, October of nineteen seventy-two. Got it. And how much of the content were sketches and short films that you had done throughout your time in Wisconsin? Did you open up with your your standard strong things, or did you do all new stuff? We had uh, we had done two shows in Madison called Vegetables, and then the entire history of the whole world way, way before Mel Brooks did the movie, and we combined the best of those shows and then called it vegetables for the first show in LA and uh, very little of it was film but we we had we had um when people came in to to sit down there were projected movies in loops uh of two two of us playing frisbee with you know Jerry and I played frisbee with Dick and Jim on the other side so that you could it actually appeared like if you were if you were looking, you couldn't look at both ends at the same time. And then on a loop at this on the stage on the stage screen, there was an audience, like a crowd, with their heads going right to left, and right to left. And so that that kind of got people in the mood. It was pretty. We did all sorts of stuff. There was uh, at at intermission. I mean, there there at a certain point, the lights went up and a phone came down from the ceiling and it was ringing. And an audience member had to pick it up. And we told the person, uh, just announce to the audience that there will be a 10-minute intermission. And they had to do that. And and so that's like all these kind of weird things. And so you start in 72. And how long before you start seeing what happened in Wisconsin on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles? It was almost immediate. We, You know, the first couple of weekends were were uh difficult because it was it was sparse because we needed to get word of mouth going so the first audience there were like 20 people and we were it was you know if you've ever performed you know you you it's like you can't perform a whole show for 20 people so to break the ice we gave them a tour of the theater beforehand <laughs> and a tour of the upstairs uh, living quarters <laughs> and we conducted a tour and then but by the second weekend we were packed it was packed eight o'clock and eight o'clock shows uh friday and saturday and then uh there was pressure in the in the ensuing weeks uh for for you know more people uh, we're, we're getting turned away. So we added shows at 10 PM, uh, on Friday and Saturday. And then we added Thursday shows and Sunday shows. And so it was filled. The and whole time. every week you did the same show. And then the next week you did a different show or you just no, kept the same, same show. The- show. Yeah. We were pretty lazy and we didn't want to add new material. And we had so much great material and it was stuff that nobody had ever seen before this this kind of style so people would come back over and over again people to see would come the same back and and not only bring their friends but guys would say that they always got laid as a result of going to Kentucky Fried Theater i don't know why maybe it was because everything there was nothing that wasn't discussed i mean it really broke the ice evidently that's fantastic yeah. to know that you were that for so many people. I was wondering we if you that, could write yes. a show for me. <laughs> we'll, we can try, but yeah. <laughs> I could use a little help. Uh, okay. So 
you do this, your whole goal is to get noticed by The Tonight Show, but they don't notice you. Yes, they did. When did they notice you? About the second month. And then what happened? Well, they they invited us over to the uh, over to Tonight Show studio, you know, to NBC Studios for an audition. Now, what kind of audition? Well, we we were supposed to do a couple, few of our sketches. We did like you know five or six sketches, and together with two other groups, one was uh, called the Committee, and one was called the Pitchell Players. And uh, so we, you know, we did great in the audition and they invited us to be on the show. And Jim so, McCau- so Jim McCauley saw it and he invited you. And so they invite you well, to be we, on the show. Yeah, I remember meeting Peter. And so, the, so we went on to the Tonight Show. And what year was that? This was in 72. Okay. So, you, so, so uh, take me back. So it's you, Jim, Jerry, uh, Jerry, and who else? Dick. Dick. And um, Lisa Davis. And Steven Stucker. Now, I've never known of a sketch group being on The Tonight Show since I've been watching. Yeah, they they did. They didn't, you know, after after that, they, I guess that was an early 70s kind of thing. They had a, they had a group on there called the Ace Trucking Company. Have you ever heard of them? Yes. Yeah. And they were the, the resident Tonight Show group. And we thought, well, we're much better than they, they are. And so we what do you, were nothing if not headstrongly confident. So what do you decide to do? You only have like five to seven minutes. What right, do you decide no, so to we do? Did, we did a sketch that uh, called Adam and Eve where, you know, Dick and Lisa did that. Always a big crowd pleaser. And then we did Stucker doing the fountain and uh, Jerry doing a fried egg. And... Uh, we did what we called the the right guard ballet, <laughs> where we spray each other. You know, it was it was sketch stuff. And how did it go? Um, not overwhelming because you know the the reaction to the live show, the live in the studio audience was great. They they loved it. However, on TV, it just it didn't come off. I don't think we were as good as the Ace Trucking Company. <laughs> and so it was interesting. Evidently, we were not this performing group. We were, I mean, we were not as great as we thought we were in in terms of, you know, being like, I think the Ace Trucking Company was better. <laughs> and when you finished your performance, you know, Johnny either didn't do anything, he went like this with the OK symbol, or he Wait a minute. well this did not apply because um we were uh, Johnny Carson introduced us and he said and a new group called Kentucky Fried Theater and everything and so but Mickey Rooney talked too long and in those days people got bumped now nobody ever gets bumped really uh and so we we were on the next night so he bumped and you the first night in Milwaukee stayed up till all hours for nothing and then we had to wait till next night when Joey Bishop was the the guest host. And oh, so you didn't get Johnny. We didn't get Johnny. Johnny never saw us. So Joey Bishop introduces us, and we you know we did our thing, and then you know we have the uh, we have the video of the whole thing, and you can see after we're done, Joey Bishop with this bewildered expression on his face, pl- applauding half heartedly. <laughs> 
So and he's and, muttering under his breath, and, and Ace we, Trucking Company yeah, is much and, better uh, than these where, guys. Where is he looking at his watch? Saying, "How long till we get Ace Trucking Company back?" <laughs> and so and, and 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 people in Milwaukee, you know, people would say, you know, when when we would go back there months later, I saw you guys in the Tonight Show. Yeah. God, it was it was horrible. So, and then we we did one more. We had we did another sh- a second show after uh, you did another Tonight Show. Of, no, no, yeah, we did we did another Tonight Show, but it was with after we had recast the Kentucky Fried Theater show. We did a we did a we wanted to recast the show so that we could write a movie, and and we you know, this was where uh, Pat Prof, Bo Capital, Mallory Sandler, and Steve Stucker, the four of them, did the show. And and we and we called the show my nose just so that our weekly listing in the L.A. Times calendar section would say my nose runs continuously. So you know, a little, a little <laughs> cleverness is just so stupid. And so, and, uh, and, and 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 we recast the show, and uh, and then the, those four were on the Tonight Show, and it was. Again, it was okay. I think it was okay, but not, not great. We were not. We knew we were not going to become. So your a biggest, your group. biggest goal was to get on the Tonight Show, yeah, and then and you get on the Tonight Show, and you realize, yeah, oh. no, yeah, it was a disappointment. So we, and the theater was going nowhere. You know, Fox Studios was two blocks away, yet no one from Fox ever came to see the show. Why do you say the theater was going nowhere? Because it was just, we were the proud operators of a successful small comedy theater. And that was where it was going to go. Unless unless we got out ourselves. So what was your next no step to get? come and get us. What? was your next step to get out? We wrote a movie. We, you know, we recast the show. And so Bo and Mallory and, uh, and uh, Stucker... And Pat Proft were, did the show. Now that's got to be difficult because you, some people come out from Wisconsin, but also you come here to LA, you you find a group of people, they give their heart and soul to it hours and hours, and then now when you're about to take things to the next level, you realize you know these people aren't good enough to be the way we want this to be. We have to hire people who are going to be better at what they do. If they were great enough for you to want to see them on film, if your vision made it to the theater, then they would have stayed in the project. Well, it was—I mean, we just didn't want to even operate a small theater. We just—we we wanted to be in the movies. We by then we were seeing Woody Allen movies and Mel Brooks movies, and we thought we can do that. I mean that's the whole thing of it. You see what's there and you you have to either you either have the self confidence to say I can do that. It's my turn now or you just you look up to these people and worship them uh and say oh my god they're amazing. I just want to wait to go to see the next Woody Allen movie. So but you know we we just had we were always very confident, very headstrong and we we thought we could do it, and we had our own style, and we knew that we were doing something completely different than what Mel or Woody were doing, and you know, just people hadn't seen it yet. So we rode airplane in the in the up in our apartment above the theater during the day. Wait, so 
you wrote Airplane before Kentucky Fried Movie? That's correct. Many people don't know this. Wow, I didn't know that. We wrote Airplane first. Now, at the time you wrote Airplane, and at the time you were writing these sketches for the Kentucky Fried Theater, was there anything that existed in film and television that utilized this style that you have basically has be, has become your lane and is known for your you being your lane for your entire career was there ever any like you know how you can point back in horror you see the cyclops and you see these things what was there ever anything in 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 black and white or even silent movies or something where they utilize this style or is this a style that was never utilized before you never saw before anywhere it was the latter never saw before anywhere i mean our people ask us all the time you know what were your influences and we you know we say you know woody allen and the marx brothers but more than that it was serious movies you know it was those straight black and white movies which we thought were hilarious it was around that time after we had you know, thought of the idea, well, we should write a movie that we met John Landis. And I had seen John Landis. He, he appeared on the tonight show because he had done a, uh, a movie called schlock and he did it with family money. And I was amazed that this, you know, I don't know. He's probably a 25 or 26 year old who had done a movie and so I called him up, and, and there was also an article in the L.A. Times about him uh, having been this young director who did a movie. So I I called him up and invited him to see the, the theater. And so he came to see the theater, and we arranged to have lunch at the Hamburger Hamlet in Culver City on Sepulveda. And I don't know if it's still there, but because uh, we wanted to pick his brain about how he did a movie. And... So he said, first, you need a script. And, uh, and we said, well, we know, but, you know, what does one look like? And this is how green we were. And so he went out to his car and got a, a sample script, and it was called American Werewolf in London. <laughs> and, you know, wait years and years, of course, before it was ever made. But he said, here, <clears throat> I have this copy. Use this. And so... That that's how we learned, you know, how to do the slug lines and how the dialogue is to be formatted and everything. So, so Sid Field hadn't <laughs> written this book screenplay by that point. No, no, no one had had done anything, and uh, in fact, Saturday Night Live was yet to be thought of. In fact, um, Lorne Michaels and brought Dick Ebersol to Kentucky Fried Theater because Lorne was trying to sell this idea of doing this Saturday Night Live show on national TV to Ebersol. And so he takes him to Kentucky Fried Theater and said, this is what I want to do on national TV. And then I guess Ebersol got it. And so that that became the start of, of Saturday Night Live. Now, we had wow. already met Chevy Chase. And who's the guy who did the... Uh, the best in show that Christopher Guest, Chris Guest, who were friends of Ken Shapiro, because we met Ken Shapiro when he was when we came out to LA. Ken Shapiro showed up at our show uh, one night, and so and we, you know, we met him. We 
Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And what was Ken doing at the time? He was working on his movie, Groove to, the movie of Groove Tube. Yeah. And uh, did I even mention that that was, uh, Channel One was Groove Tube. That's what, that's what Ken Shapiro, that's what it was called. So he was doing a movie of Groove Tube, and uh, and and we thought Chevy was really funny because he had he was in Groove Tube, and he wanted to be in our show. And we said, well, you know, we'd love to have you in it, but we we have to wait till you know somebody quits because we we didn't want to fire the guy that we had. There was a guy named Jesse Emmett who was you know funny, but he, he was not Chevy Chase, but. Uh, anyway, so then in around 75, uh, I called Chevy cause Jesse left the show and I said, well, we've got an opening now. He said, well, I'm going to New York. I'd love to, but I'm going to New York to do this new show. And so, and the rest is history, of course, but, uh, and Lore never auditioned any of your people for Saturday Night Live. No. And we thought at the time when Lauren was there that, Hey, this is, he's going to audition us and we'll be on this national show or hired as writers or something, but, but they didn't, but that's, that's okay. He, he, in fact, most of my information on this comes from a book that there's a book on Saturday Night Live. A cut, there's a couple of books which tell this story about uh, Lauren Michaels taking uh, Ebersol and his, and and Lauren's wife or either his wife or his girlfriend Rosie Schuster to Kentucky Fried Theater, and uh, Ebersol was trying to hit on Rosie <laughs> and didn't know that she was either. I don't know if they were married or. It was a girlfriend, but that did was, they introduce that themselves was after the show? Then later, yeah, to his great embarrassment. No, 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 no. Oh, I see. No, no, I, you mean to us. <laughs> yes. Yeah, of course. We knew they were there, and they they said hello, and we even did a a little. Um, it was a we took a little uh, um, color film sound Kodak film of it because we would we would uh, film things or video and then send it back to my mom and dad in Milwaukee to, as a kind of a, this is the news. And so, and Jerry narrated, said, this is Lauren Michaels here with Rosie Schuster and Dick Ebersol. They're here from New York and 
blah, blah, blah. So Awesome. And yeah, so you it. write airplane. Yeah. So we and then you, so you write it, you get it all paginated the right way and yeah. structured the right way. And you don't write Kentucky Fried Movie, although you have it technically written. It's just not in script form. Right, not in script form. And and so you, what do you do with Airplane? Well, do you f- try to find an agent? What do you What well, do you do? Um, it, it, we were um, John Landis was going to direct. We wanted John to direct Airplane because we didn't. We weren't directors yet. Here is a real director, and and Bob Weiss, our other friend, uh, would produce it. And so I think we. We tried to, I don't think we even had an agent at the time. We just, I think we, Landis and Weiss took it to some studios, but it was turned down everywhere. And then, and that that took about a year to write it and take it around and get turned down. So Landis then said, why don't you guys make a movie of your theater? And that's what became Kentucky Fried Theater. Now let's let's just talk about the writing a movie in this genre and it, it, do you have a specific name that you call this genre that everybody calls it no i don't think i don't know spoof i don't know that's i mean they just call it spoof spoof the but, spoof genre okay so what i wanted to ask yeah. you was this yeah so much of what is laughter on the screen is expression now granted Yes, there's you know the guy in the whatever the movie airplane the 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 tall guy who's always out of frame and the banana falls down the table. Obviously, that when written on the page is funny. But was it always funny on the page because there was so much expression and so much? Well, it wasn't so much expression, but basically, you know, we set up familiar situations like you like you have in these hard-hitting serious movies not we based airplane on a 1957 black and white movie called zero hour did you did you know that because you can google zero hour and airplane and people have created these scene for scene uh juxtapositions of the of the two movies and so we really a lot of airplane is just copies of these serious scenes and you want to and you want to know something? I thought it was a parody of Airport. It was in some part. It was we we drew sketches from airplane scenes from Air, Airport and Airport seventy five, as well as you know some some lesser known movies. There were some other black and white uh, airliner in trouble movies, like uh, there was one called Crash Landing, uh, and it was it was a genre. It was like a pre disaster genre of the fifties. And then it came more full-blown disaster genre in the 70s. Got it. So everyone passes on airplane. You decide, hey, fuck it. Let's try to get this Kentucky Fried. Right, and we hadn't really gotten to the studios yet. We weren't of a level where we could even get an agent to read it. So Landis suggests, why don't you do a movie of your show? And so we we wrote the script to Kentucky Fried Theater. This is an extraordinary story, everybody. So if you're listening and you want to know what can happen from if you have a dollar and a dream, listen up. I'm not even going to really try to interrupt him here about how it happened, how he got the financing, how he got it up and running, and what happened to get the rest of the financing to get the movie done 
and out there because it's really an incredible story of how you have literally a version that's probably twenty five or thirty five thousand dollars that's ten minutes long and then turns into a movie that does millions and millions and millions of dollars and becomes a spark plug for my generation of college kids of the kind of kind of movie that we wanted to see. Well, it was, I mean, we had the script. We wrote the script, and we just got nowhere with it. And we, we were meeting with, we ended up in the home of some real estate developer who said, I can, I can finance this. And so, but, but he never really, then he said, I want to get my, I don't want to do the whole thing myself because we got the budget. We did the budget for him and the budget was, I don't know, 600,000. So he says, I can't do the whole thing. I want to get my neighbors in it. So, but they want to know that you guys can actually produce this. So we want to know if your boy Landis here can direct and if Weiss can produce. Uh, they they need a sample. So let's do 10 minutes of it and um, and I'll pay for it and uh, and I can show this to them. And so we thought that was a that was a great idea. So go go budget the write and budget the 10 minutes. So we picked out four sketches from Kentucky Fried movie. What were the four? Uh, it was the uh, assassination game, uh, zinc oxide, Cleopatra Schwartz, and the newscast. So, and we thought those were most representative of what the movie was. And so we we put those together, had it budgeted. So then the budget came out to I don't know. I, I think it was in the high 20s, 20, let's say 28,000. So we take it back to them and we're all excited about this. We thought, what a great idea this is. Once they see this 10 minutes, the neighbors will just, they'll shower us with money. So he says, uh, okay, budget's 28,000 and these are the sketches. Uh, No, I don't think I'm going to do it. And we said no. You, you're not going to do it. And he said no. And I'm I'm really not interested in in investing the you know the six hundred thousand dollars either. So he's not going to do anything. It was just a no. So I mean, it's one of those you know moments that you always remember. You know, like where you were during OJ's Bronco chase. And so we, I'm sure you remember that more than anybody else. Yeah, so, I, you know, I directed the most famous murderer of the 20th century. Anyways, back to Kentucky Fried Movie. Uh, we we leave his house and we're just we're just crushed. It's like, and we get into the car and it's like we're back to square one. And then, but on the car ride, we're we're thinking, you know, if this was worth it for a stranger to invest 28,000 um why wouldn't it be worth it for us to do it if it's if we thought it was so such a great idea to do the 10 minutes short why don't we do that we can do this we can put up the money and my mom and dad will help out and so that's what we did and we you know we produced this we directed these these four sketches our audience should know that somebody who's retiring this week was a famous person who auditioned for this movie. Oh yeah. This was up for the feature David Letterman. That's right. 
one of one of my big regrets that I mean no one cares about, but I it just is always kind of I you know I just wince when I think about it. But we picked another guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. And Letterman was so funny and so good in the newscast. We even used some of the lines that he made up in his audition. He was so brilliant and so funny. But, you know, later, you know, we kind of became friends and, you know, we joked about it and we appeared on his show once and, you know, and showed the and showed the audition. Well, actually, his audition for Airplane we showed. Anyways, but um, so okay, we, so we decided to do this this uh, short, the ten minute short ourselves. And by the way, by that time we were not four. There were not four of us. Chud now left. He left the the show in seventy two. Not e- after not even a full year. So it was three partners. The whole, the whole uh, Kentucky Fried Theater thing was mainly done by the three of us, Jim and Jerry and I. So we so we and we borrowed my 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 mom and dad put in ten. Jerry and Jim and I put in each five, and we did the 10 minutes, and then Landis and Weiss took it around to all the studios, and we were turned down again. So it was still, you know, so we had this, we were out 5,000 bucks a piece, which was huge for us. And so we thought, ay, we had this this $30,000 white elephant, and at least we wanted to see what the reaction was in front of a live audience. So... We took it to uh, Kim Jorgensen, who was the uh, the the head of uh, it was it was uh, well New Art Theater, the Fox Venice, these repertory booking. It was Landmark Theaters, mm-hmm. and Kim is it, it coincidentally was from Milwaukee, and so we met him there in the afternoon, and he wanted to see it before showing it on Saturday night. And so uh, we showed it to him. He fell out of his chair laughing and loved it. He said, this is great. Where, where have you taken this? And we said, well, we took it to the studios. And he said, don't take it to the studios. They'll, they'll never understand this stuff. Uh, I could get you the financing. Give me two weeks. I can find the financing for you uh, from my friends. From you know, f- I'll get it for you. The 600000 we thought, more bullshit. We had just heard so much of this stuff. Now, before I go, the four sketches that you shot in the 10 minutes, if you did do the movie, would it be assumed that that 10 minutes has already been shot right, and you put sh- that back in the movie, you yes. wouldn't have to reshoot that? Right. We shot it in 35 millimeter. Got it. Okay. So that it would, no money was wasted, believe me. Got it. Uh, and gas had gone up to like uh, 90 cents a gallon by that time. So, you know, money was worth something. And so, uh, you know, we, and, and then it, true to his word, Kim Jorgensen uh, got the financing for us two weeks later from his exhibitor friends in San Francisco who showed the 10 minutes in their theaters. I mean, the studios would never think to do that or anything. Yeah, I had heard that the the 10 minutes, this person helped you get it in front of like as a pre-short before certain movies in certain theaters in San Francisco only. Was it one or two theaters in San Francisco that did it? I don't. I don't remember. It but people were too. going crazy for it. People and, laughed and, at, as they did that night at the New Art when we showed. Yeah, it. and so, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that convinced the investor a hundred percent to put in the money. Right, and so we just had the money like that. 
$670,000. And so Landis directs, Weiss produces. Uh, Jerry and Jim and I went in as executive producers. It was now, first, why were you, know, you executive producers when you guys were the driving force behind the project? Why weren't you capital P producers? We were, I think. I mean, we were... Oh, produced by? You know, we never cared about the credits. It's like, you know, Bob Weiss was the line producer. So we just, we didn't care about producing. And in fact, I've never cared about being a producer. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session, barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. 
So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.